Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Insurgent Architects House for Creative Writing podcast series. My name is Larissa Lai, and I direct the Tea House Project as part of a Canada Research Chair in Creative Writing, which I hold here at the University of Calgary. I'm Hong Kong Chinese by way of Kumaye, Biotuk, and Coast Salish territories. I currently live on Treaty 7 land, where Tea House also makes its home. Tea House specifically acknowledges the Blackfoot Confederacy, comprising the Siksika, Bigani, and Gaina First Nations, as well as the Sutina First Nation and the Stony Nakoda, comprising the Chiniki, Bearspaw, and Wesley First Nations. We acknowledge also the Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. Podcasts are produced and edited by graduate students from the English department here at the University of Calgary. You're just about to meet one of them. Hello and welcome to Tea House Talks, the Insurgent Architects House for Creative Writing podcast series. Today we present an interview of Warren Carew, led by Mark Herman Lynch. My name is Ben Berman Gann, and I'm a research assistant for the Tea House Project at the University of Calgary. In this interview, Warren and Mark discuss many of Warren's works, including his work in film, as well as his work as an editor on both literary journals and anthologies of Indigenous literature. Warren Carew was born and raised in a family of Métis and European ancestry in Meadow Lake, Saskatchewan. He has published works of fiction and memoir, as well as critical writing about Indigenous storytelling, literature, and environmental philosophy. He is the general editor of First Voices, First Texts, series of critical editions at the University of Manitoba Press, and he has edited several collections of Indigenous literature. His films and his bitumen Photographs document the experience of indigenous communities in the Athabasca Tar Sands region, and he is a member of the Waniskatan Hydro Alliance, studying the effects of hydro projects upon indigenous communities. He is a professor in the Department of English, Theatre, Film, and Media at the University of Manitoba. Between 2014 and 2019, he was the curator of the Flywheel Reading Series and also worked with the creative team at Woodsworth Youth Writing Camp. He resides in Mokinstis, otherwise known as Calgary, in Treaty 7, Alberta. His debut novel, Aborescent, was published with Arsenal Pulp Press in 2020. Thank you so much, Warren, for uh, joining us. Is your last name um, pronounced Cario? Cario, yeah. Yeah, Cario. Um, thank you so much for joining us with Tea House. Um, we were just, just before we started the podcast, we were actually talking about uh, storytelling, right? And the different kind of modes of storytelling. Um, and you were talking a little bit about how uh, young people who were kind of like maybe uh, distanced from their from the traditions, it's very, very difficult for them to get back into the kind of storytelling. Could you talk more about that? Yeah, I mean, this is really something that, you know, in my in my work in the last 20 years, I've spent a lot of time with elders who are storytellers. Hmm. And, you know, and they, 
you know, they're each different, each has their own, you know, own communities and different histories. But one of the things that a lot of them say is that, you know, they want, they really want the stories to be shared in the next generation. And, yeah. um, but that the young people somehow just, you know, don't know how to approach them or, or sometimes feel like it's, it's just too big of a task to be the one who, you know, carries that story into the next generation. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, yeah, you know, I think that is something that, you know, now we're in this media saturated world where everything can be recorded. Um, but it's not the same to record a story as it is to actually have it live inside you because you, you know, you heard it and you listened to it with such, uh, you know, such care. Um, so I think, yeah, this is something that, you know, uh, I think people in all different cultural traditions are, are sort of struggling with probably, but certainly I see it in the Indigenous communities that I work with. Yeah. And you, you also, um, I was, I'm just thinking of, the essay land sending body territory and relation you actually add uh a a story a joke right from one of the elders yeah that's exactly that's Lou bird is one of the you know elders i've worked with for the longest and he is uh yeah he's incredible and and he you know louis also tells me that you know he he has you know young people in the community who like to listen to his stories but um you know he feels like they're you know he really wants to share more and and uh, and there's you know Young people have a lot of other things to to work to to deal with and to you know to prioritize and and so it's a big challenge for him particularly. I was really thinking of him when I was saying that. Right. Um, and yeah, so you know, recording the stories is certainly a good thing to do or help you know if the elder wants to do that. And I've been you know doing yeah. that for a long time, but but uh, but yeah, trying to share the stories in different ways and 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 you know that's yeah. where I thought Louis' joke. Um, to share that as part of an academic paper, I thought, I think something he, he thought that was pretty funny when I told him that I was doing that. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Just to kind of like give the listeners a kind of a sense of it. It's a joke about accidentally killing a Thunderbird, a sort of mystical creature, then devouring it and having <laughs> explosive gas, let's say. Yes. <laughs> so it turns out to be, uh, yeah, a body joke, I guess. But uh, but as in so many, uh, you know, of Louis' stories often are very funny, but they're there are really rich and profound teachings in them as well. And I think that's something that, you know, you can learn in a different way through hearing a joke rather than, you know, being told, you know, this is sacred. This is how you, this is how you conduct yourself. The joke yeah. gives us that information, you know, teaches us in a way, you know, some of the really crucial Omashkiko Creek values, but it does it, you know, in a way that, that is memorable, right? And so people, when you've heard that, you won't, you won't forget it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And also uh, as you, deathly kind of like break apart the joke right not in a sort of i don't want to say that in a pejorative way but like for example how you you look at the joke and you analyze the way that it actually starts with a disconnection from land right mm-hmm. i think that was very very uh, that was very powerful when i read it as well mm, thanks yeah this is for me thinking about things stories that louis has told me you know i i come up with new meanings for them and he and he reminds me of different possible meanings or more meanings mm-hmm. Um, in subsequent tellings, you know, so that these stories have so much in them. They may seem very short and, you know, lacking sometimes in the detail that we expect in fiction, but the yeah. the, the richness is there in a really condensed way that I think is is extraordinary. You know, a, a lot of uh, your work touches on uh, land relations to story. I, I'm, I may be kind of like, uh, I hope I'm not overstepping my bounds in making that statement, no. but uh, I'm just thinking, for example, of your introduction to Duncan Mercury's um, uh, poetry. And you say there, like the, actually you show how, for example, Duncan 
talks a lot about um, how the Grand Rapids Dam uh, that uh, occurred in Grand Rapids, Manitoba, um, interrupted the land, but it also interrupted the processes of storytelling, right? And his ability to kind of like access stories. I was hoping you could talk more about the kind of the connection between story and land in this way. You know, in Duncan's case, you know, he's really eloquent in his telling about what the river was like and how the river actually was, you know, a living presence in the community and how it joined together the two sides of Missipowistic, the community, on each, one on each side of the river. And, uh, you know, it would, people would just travel back and forth on in boats and canoes. But when the dam came in, the river just stopped. And the sound of the rapids that was all around them and, and so just that sort of profound affective change, I guess, that this mm. that the dam brought is something that, you know, he talks about in terms of very sudden, you know, before and after. But he also talks about how, you know, that change, yeah, it made it really the, the stories that the, the storytellers who would travel on the river in the winter sort of stopped coming. It disrupted their economy in huge ways, right, and changed their labor um, practices and changed their abilities to survive on the land it made it impossible really or, or largely impossible all these things just from one you know one intervention and uh yeah you know duncan moved away from misopostic he still you know certainly goes back there and and tells stories about it and writes poems about it but um you know he moved to the city as many indigenous people did at around the same time that he did and um so he has now made winnipeg his sort of trap line as he calls it you know and so now we sometimes don't think about the city as being the land, <laughs> but, mm -hmm. you know, Duncan's work really reminds us that it is and mm -hmm. that, you know, you can have a close relationship to an urban place too, recognizing the ways it's been transformed, but, but also recognizing that it has, you know, it's persisted too, right? And even though it may not be readily recognizable, having, you know, been altered, but um, we still have that relationship with it and we have our call to an ethical connection to that land too. Yeah, absolutely. And like, um, and this idea of the sensory relationship to the land as a sort of knowledge practice, I think is very um, profound in your work. Uh, I think even like looking at a documentary like Land of Oil and Water, one of the interviewees discusses how even the the fish all of a sudden tastes different, like, and they have different texture and different kind of quality. And all of a sudden, like the, the space around them is all of a sudden changed. They don't know that the Athabasca oil sands, which the land of oil and water is about, or sorry, tar sands, uh, which is what it's about. It actually changed the sort of the structure of that kind of space and how they kind of uh, are inform themselves and connect to the land. Yeah. Uh, and this was, uh, I'll just just add this was a, a person up in um in Fort Chipewyan, which is you know quite a distance away from the tar sands mines, but it's on the Athabasca River. I mean it's on the Lake Athabasca. So that water that flows past all of those mines um, and tailings ponds goes right past um the folks there in, in Fort Chip. And uh so yeah, so there, you know, th there's all kinds of toxins in that in that water in the Athabasca River, you know, it's been well documented. And so even though they can't physically see the 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 tailings ponds and they can't see the smokestacks, it's there. The, the presence has has moved along the the river system and is very much there in a in a in a sense sensory way, uh, as you mentioned, right? That the the fish tastes different. Um and um so yeah, so I think really for me this is something that you know I'm very interested in is is, is our sensory 
uh, I guess, interpretation of uh, our embodied uh, place in the land. Because I think, you know, a lot of times for me, the places that have had really powerful sort of positive experiences or, or positive associations, I also do associate them with, you know, if I'm outdoors, like the smell of pine sap, you know, in, um, in the boreal forest or other kinds of, uh, yeah, smell memories in particularly, I guess. But, uh, but yeah, I think that sense that, you know, we're, when we're sensing the landscape, it's actually, you know, acting on us. It is, it is, you know, uh, um, agential in that, in a sense. And uh, so we're having, I think, you know, in a really microscopic way, a relationship to, um, through that kind of sensory connection that we're making. And this kind of uh, builds off this kind of concept of petromodernity as interfering with this type of like practice of knowledge, right? And sensory kind of like connection. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think in other, many other ways, you know, modernity is about compartmentalizing away from the, mm. the land. Right. And, um, right. And, you know, so in one sense that is, um, you know, creating a space where we have comforts, where we have, you know, a, a thermostat that just regulates the temperature of our house. And we don't have to think about, um, you know, fluctuations of the outside temperature. But I think at the same time, that compartmentalization works the other way. It insulates us away from the, the really crucial things that the land is trying to tell us. Yeah. Right. Um, and I think that the oil companies and other you know, other industries as well, and I think hydro does this too, um, you know, they try to sort of encourage that insulation. Away. So we don't think about where this energy is coming from. We don't think about mm. the consequences that... Um, this energy is is visiting upon other parts of the of the land. Uh, we just think about the the fact that we're insulated away from the environment mm. in a comfortable way. Um, but it's all connected, you know, and I think this is something that um, certainly that the elders teach, you know, that, that things are all connected. You can't separate something out. You know, mm -hmm. healing can't be sort of separated out and and put the toxic material there and and keep it there away from everything else. It will leak. and um, this is the nature of the physical universe, right? That yeah. nothing can be sequestered away. And yet there are these fantasies of doing that, which are associated with, with modernity in, in many different forms, I think. Yeah. And it seems to kind of like really work with the concept of waste culture, right? Like you throw something away and all of a sudden it disappears from sight and therefore it disappears from your mind, right? It's a very, it's, it's a sort of a strange way of like you say, not seeing, right? Um, or I think the the term that you use uh, from Stephanie Le Menagier, Le Menagier, <laughs> uh, or sorry, uh, no, Diana Taylor, sorry, is percepticide, the the sort of the death of seeing. Yeah, I think that that's a really really useful uh, term that that Diana Taylor um, brought into her work, and yeah, I think this idea of you know sort of deadening our senses in certain ways um, to to make people anesthetized away from thinking about the consequences of um, some of their own decisions or decisions that their politicians are making. Um, and uh, yeah, so in a way, if if our if our senses are deadened enough, then the companies, you know, and, and the they, they can sort of get away with doing uh, doing things that you know, if people really were more alert to what was going on, it wouldn't really give them social license to do that, I think. Yeah, you, you know, it's funny, I, I, I grew up in Fort McMurray, so oh, okay. um, right next to the Clearwater. And so my father, I just remember this 
quite vividly, my father had to get up around uh, five or six in the morning in order to be bussed off to Sincrude or Suncor. And that idea of just kind of that distance, right? Of They wanted to really make it as far as possible from, you know, the urban kind of, uh, from urban visibility, right? Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a sort of another, again, a way of just not seeing, right? Like the abattoir is far enough away that we don't have to smell it. And therefore, we don't know how we get our food. And therefore, we can just eat and consume and uh, be in that kind of process uh, blindly. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think, I guess, you, if you having lived in Fort McMurray, you would maybe know about this, but in, in Land of Oil and Water, when we filmed some of the some of the shots of one of the big tailings ponds near Suncor, that that area was not too long after we did the filming in 2008, I guess it was, they built a huge berm over uh, beside the road. So now you can't see that tailings pond. You know, it's, it's quite amazing that because I think they were actually recognized that people were getting a lot of photographs there. And they, I think, you know, they said it was for other reasons, but if they could just sort of build up a, a barrier so people don't look over the hill, then no one will notice, you know? I mean, it's, it's, it's a crazy idea in a way, but on the other hand, you know, if people can just sort of think, oh, well, it's over there. I don't have to think about it and I don't have to see it. Then it's easier to deaden yourself to the consequences, I guess. Yeah. Absolutely. Actually, I, I just want to segue to another way that you kind of make this type of um, industry visible to us, and that is through uh, petrography. And um, so since two, 2014, you've been creating petrographs using the process of petrography that repurposes some of the original forms of image development, right? Um, so to frame our conversation and provide some context for the listeners uh, about petrography, do you think you can give us a rundown of what drew you to this process and how it connects to the Athabasca and oil production in Northern Alberta? Sure, yeah. I, as you know, like you, I, I didn't grow up as close to the tar sands as you, but um, not too far away in, uh, in Meadow Lake, just across the, uh, the border in Saskatchewan. You know, growing up, I, I knew people went there to work, but I never went there. And it was only, I guess, yeah, around, around the year 1998 or so that I went, I went there for the first time and I saw the, um, the devastation that is the, you know, the mines. And I was, I was so shocked by that, that I, I wanted to try and make it visible in some way. And uh, so I started writing about it. You know, other people were, have obviously been doing this as well, but at the time, it felt like hardly anyone really was, you know, in, in, before, um, yeah, you know, before uh, um, about the middle of the 20, 2005 or so, when I think there became a lot more visibility. Um, but anyway, as I, I made the film Land of Oil and Water and, and did other things, but it felt like there was still more to be said. And I felt like I could all, I always was uh, wanting something else, another way to try and engage with this. So I, I thought, like, can I make something with the tar itself? Like, is it possible to make something creative with it rather than turning it into gasoline or diesel? Um, and so I, I remembered that the very first photograph um, in 1826 was made by Nisiphorneeps in France, and he used a, a substance name uh, called bitumen of Judea. And so I started doing some research on that, and I thought, could I make a photograph with this stuff? And uh, you know, after a lot of experiments and getting my hands very dirty, yeah, yeah, I, I could do it, and, and it was possible to show. And it, my point was to, you know, at least at first, was to use the tar to create images of the mines and of the of the extractive process. And so. So yeah, I was able to do that. It's a very unusual kind of image. It's an evanescent image on a, on a polished metal plate. But what you're seeing when you look at a petrograph is oil. You're seeing tar that is 
subject to the sun's radiation, ultraviolet radiation that transforms it into an image. And, um, so yeah, so it's been a really fascinating uh, journey for me on that. I, you know, I never thought of myself as a visual artist, um, but this sort of took me into that realm. And yeah, I you know, found that you know, a lot of folks are pretty interested in this as a process. And uh, so I've you know, had the opportunity to talk with some art historians and people who are very interested in the history of photography who find this interesting too. So yeah, you know, it's it's something that, I, you know, I, I again, it just sort of began as an experiment, but I, I really want to keep going with it because I think I haven't finished the, I guess, the relationship with the tar that I started when I was doing that work. And like, they're very, some of them are very eerie, right? Especially the ones where, for example, it's the still image and like the light is sort of shifting and as the light shifts the, the 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 picture or the way we see the picture changes and i find that really really fascinating mm, yeah thanks yeah i mean it is that's something at first when that when i got the first couple of images made i thought this is really weird it's very hard to see the image because there's all these reflections in it um because it is basically a mirror right and uh, a mirror with tar on it and uh but i actually really started liking that eventually because i realized that yeah i know for myself as a as a viewer, or whoever the viewer is, you can't escape your own reflection when you're looking at this thing. So it's like you're embedded in it. And I think that is an interesting way of showing us our relationship to oil. Um, you're looking at the image, and you're seeing that's something that's far away, you know, that's a tailing pond, or that's a mine, but, but I'm in it. <laughs> and we are in it, right? We're all, so, you know, uh, um, because of climate change, but also just because of, all, you know, all the uh, aromatic hydrocarbons that are released in the burning of fossil fuels, we're surrounded by this stuff. It's now omnipresent in our atmosphere. Um, and so, again, this sort of helps us, I guess, maybe or encourages us to, to remember that, right? To not deaden our senses, but to sort of awaken our senses, hopefully, to think about our own um, embeddedness in this substance that has been you know, violently torn from where it wants to be, I guess. Yeah, it, it reminds me almost like a daguerreotype with the ghost image in the background sometimes, right? Uh, although it's, this one's much more like copper and brass and then, but sharp darknesses on light. It's, the contrast is very interesting. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I mean, it is very, very similar to Daguerre's process, actually. And Niepce invented this process and then Digger sort of uh, took it to the next step, I guess. But yeah, daguerreotypes are very similar in terms of their reflective qualities as well. Right. Yeah. And you've been doing this practice now for about 10 years, would you say? Pretty close. Yeah, it was 2014 when I did the first uh, experiments. So yeah, coming up on you know nine years now. Right. So how do you feel like that process has changed and evolved? I'm particularly interested in how your connection to the flavor and scent of the land has evolved with this messy material <laughs> this sulfur yeah. material yeah so i mean again you know my you know as anyone who has been to the tar sands mines you know when you go the smell is overpowering and it's very repulsive to me smell and i think i don't know of anyone who likes it um and it you know gives me a headache and so we have this immediate sort of onslaught of your senses right and so that when i when i decided I thought I would try to make something with it. I was assuming that I was going to be, you know, working with something that was disgusting. <laughs> uh, it is toxic. And, and I have over time, you know, recognized that when I, when I work with it, I have to heat it up and, and it's, mm. you know, it sort of smokes and it, it, it really releases the, the aromatics of it. And um, that gives me headaches and, and really, you know, makes me 
feels strange actually. So I've been, you know, over fairly quickly decided I need to have, you know, protection from that. So I had, you know, a re respirator and got mm. now a more elaborate form of respirator to try to, you know, mitigate those dangers because, you know, there are, you know, clearly dangers associated with, with a number of the chemicals that are part of, of uh, bitumen. But actually though, when I went to gather it, you know, I, I, way back when I, I thought, okay, I'd like to get some of this stuff and, and, uh, you know, where do I get it? Uh, you know, when people said, well, you could maybe just like steal some from the company somewhere or something like that. But no, I thought, I don't really want to do that. Um, and, you know, I had heard that it was just, you know, there on the land, like it actually yeah. you know, seeps out of the land naturally. Yeah. And so I thought, well, I want to try and find that. So, so managed to find a, um, a guy who was normally a fishing guide, but he took us out in his boat on the Athabasca River and we went around and we found this hillside. And he said he knew he'd seen some of these places. So he took us to a place and, and here the, the, it was a seam in the, in the side of the hill where this black, you know, substance was there. And, but it was beautiful and, and it was not, and the smell wasn't horrible. It was actually really quite pleasant. You could still tell there was a you know, slight spicing in the air, but it wasn't um, overpowering. Right. Um, and, this, and the place was full of plants. You know, it was in the season where the, when the wild roses were blooming and they were blooming in profusion and there were, you know, birds around. And I realized like this is how this, the substance isn't by nature toxic. You know, it, yeah. it's only when it gets disrupted that it becomes toxic. Right. It's actually supporting life. Like all these plants are growing on it. But um, so so it gave me a totally different perspective on the bitumen, what I wasn't really expecting. I was thinking I want to have some kind of relationship with it, but I thought it would always be a very wary relationship. So now there still is the wariness because I you know I recognize that it it, it has you know uh, the potential to be very toxic in certain situations. But but it also yeah I just come to have I guess a kind of respect for it I guess and a sort of appreciation of its qualities. Um, and, uh, so over time, yeah, you know, I, you know, I, you know, I've, I've sort of grown fond of the, 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 the bits of bitumen that I have collected that I've kept here, you know, that I work with every year and it, it doesn't take very much to make a petrograph. So I've probably got enough for a, a few decades of supply here. Um, but yeah, you know, I think it, it's become, I, I've, I've had come to see it in a much more, you know, I've seen the, the, the dangers of it, but I also really come to appreciate the the beauty of it actually and the and the fact that it is a medicine and it was also you know understood as medicine by um you know by the elders in in many different um indigenous communities mm. and how the, the tar was used you know on the athabasca also for um for sealing boats and canoes you know so it had all these other other uses so i just like the idea that i'm able to have a different way of relating to it and thinking that you know, yeah. I'm working with it, and it it has its own contribution to the way the image turns out as well. So, yeah. so I can't really master it. I can just sort of create certain conditions and hope that an image will arise. At least half the time, the image doesn't doesn't show up. So, yeah. so that's also part of that negotiation, I guess, or relationship that I've had to build with the the, the tar, which I've really enjoyed actually over the over the time that I've worked with it. It's especially you say it's like both beautiful and repugnant, right? Just like, for example, the way the petrochemical industry creates beautiful things, things that help help us um, in our everyday lives, but at the same time is very destructive and has this sort of these consequences. Yeah, I think you know, I think that's something that you know, I think sometimes people who are apologists for the oil industry, you know, will say, well, hey, you know, don't do you want to you know go without 
some of these petrochemicals that can save people's lives? Or do you want yeah. to, you know, not ever travel anywhere? But I think that that misses the point, right? I mean, I think it's these substances do have amazing properties and they they do, uh, you know, at times enable us to do incredible things. Mm-hmm. Um, but we can't forget that they also have these other very damaging side to them. And I think we need to have, you know, we're not, I guess humans are not really very good at holding contrary ideas in their minds. Um, but I think this is a substance that really reminds us of that contrariness, right? It has these gifts for us, but it also has great dangers too. And in a way, a lot of medicines are like that, right? I think um, when we think about this within Indigenous traditions, um, you know, medicines are dangerous if you don't know what you're doing with mm-hmm. them, right? If you're not um, appropriately to use them or if you don't um, uh, respect them in the proper way mm-hmm. um, and I think this is true in other cases too you know even in the western world of medicine if, if it's not uh, applied in a in a thoughtful way it can be very damaging so yeah so I really have you know started to think more and more about that the doubleness I guess of of the um, of petroleum in relation to how medicine offers gifts but also offers potential dangers too yeah, I was uh, just recently in New Orleans, and they were talking about kind of the waste, the enormous amounts of waste that is created by Mardi Gras, and just the beads themselves, and the thousands of tons they have to kind of fish out of the sewers, and just this sort of, and and I guess this is the kind of concept of petro modernity is that it's it's so easily accessible that we don't think about it, right? We don't think about the actual waste of it. We just buy, 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 you know, it's a very, yeah, when you see that, when you see the thousands of tons of, <laughs> of of beads, you realize, right, I, if, if I were the person that was throwing the beads, I was contributing to that enormous amount of waste, right? Yeah. And the fact that they be, they're so cheap to produce. Yeah. Um, makes it seem that there's no consequences, right? It, mm-hmm. um, throwing it away is not going to cost me hardly anything right Mm -hmm. which is of course yeah what we have with um plastic packaging as well right it becomes basically invisible to the consumer because it doesn't have any any real any monetary cost Mm -hmm. but these other costs are massive and in fact are very expensive even in economic terms let alone in ecological and ethical terms too yeah so yeah this is just yet another way i think of people blocking off or insulating themselves from consequences right Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, uh, as you were talking about how you were going to get the, so you were telling the story about how you're going to get the bitumen, and you were talking about how you were going to break in and steal a little bit of it. It reminds me of a short story that you wrote called an Athabasca story, where uh, the elder brother literally <laughs> goes in and uh, becomes entangled with the natar, thinking that he could steal it to in order to kind of provide warmth, and then is unable to extricate himself, and then becomes a sort of knocking, banging reminder of our everyday use of petrochemicals. Like, I find this story so evocative because it it actually is doing what you're saying. Is it trying to make us aware of what we're typically unwilling to see? And that is the direct connection between extraction and consumption. So I, I just want you to talk more about uh, this concept of how important it is to remember to remember. Yeah, that's a really, really great point. Robin Wall Kimmerer, in her in her book Creating Sweetgrass, she talks about sweetgrass as a medicine that its job is to remind us to remember. <laughs> mm, right, um, and so um, that really just resonates for me. And and uh, well, the, the the Athabasca story really is um, it arose as a result of my spending time 
in in the tar sands and, and doing some of the work on the film land of oil and water at, um in interspersed with that i was spending a lot of time with louis bird the elder who was uh telling telling a lot of um trickster stories and uh so so yeah so that you know that story is really about you know thinking about what would you know uh like a traditional free sensibility make i guess of this what has happened here and um so i think for you know for elder brother his he is he's sort of you know as a trickster figure he is he's he's fallible right he, he does make mistakes and i think he's sort of yeah he he sees the the potential of this material right he says i could i could, I could be warm I, I would never be cold again and he's very attracted by that um and he doesn't really think about the negative consequences either uh, and as in so many of the trickster stories that, you know, it's the trickster's error that helps, I guess, to point the ethical message for the reader or the viewer or, this, or the listener. Uh, and so I think there, yeah, you know, I was trying to maybe explore how, you know, Elder Brother, even as a, you know, divine figure in a way or as a, as a um, very um, gifted being, uh, even he can get caught up in this and, and then he can be there you know, as a reminder to us of his mistake, right? And maybe we should think about what his mistake was and try not to replicate that. Yeah, now every time I think of my car engine banging and uh, thumbing, thrumming, I'm going to think of uh, Elder Brother. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm glad that he will, he will be there to remind everyone. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the ghost. Well, I guess it's not a ghost if he's uh, immortal in this way. <laughs> it's true. Fortunately, as I say, yes, he's not. he doesn't die, but uh, he's probably not as happy in there as he would be elsewhere. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> You know, it's it's amazing to think about kind of all the work that you've done. So in pre prepping for this interview, I was looking at all the work and I was like, wow, I don't even know where to start because you have so much. You have material, you have novellas and memoir and documentaries and essays and a manifesto as well as petrography. Uh, how, did, how, do you, how do these processes provide different ways of storytelling for you? Or do you think that each has their own flavor? Is there a reason why something your interest would draw you to one medium over another? Yeah, I mean, I think in a way I'm very restless. Um, and and I, I'm just always wanting to try new ways of telling the story. Um, and certainly, you know, even with filmmaking, that was, you know, because I was so interested in storytelling. I think it all comes back really to the storytelling for me. That's that's the sort of medium that I'm the most, I guess, yeah, um, embedded mm -hmm. in. And, you know, I grew up in a, sto in a storytelling family. But all these other other genres and and uh, forms yeah i guess i i like to i guess challenge myself to try something new there's also i guess a sense of freedom when you're trying a new form because if it doesn't work then you never had any expectations that it was going to work you know i think that petrography is a, is a prime example of that like i really didn't i didn't think it was going to work right. i just thought well this would be fun to try it's a low low stakes if it doesn't work so there is that as well that there's it's sort of fun to just try something new you know yeah um, with the the themes of of energy and especially of oil, it's partly though on, in that regard um, a kind of frustration that I you know I keep trying to to approach this this incredibly huge problem this this massive thing that is very you know deeply affecting my home but also mm -hmm. affecting the whole planet and, and so I think there I'm also just the restlessness is is not just about having fun, but actually, you know, really about trying new ways of figuring out what is going on and what, what we can do about this. 
um, because, you know, what's going on in relation to climate change, what's going on in relation to environmental racism, uh, you know, it doesn't, it isn't just, um, you know, affecting Indigenous people in, in my home or in other communities, um, you know, it's affecting everyone. Um, and it's also so massive that it's, it's sort of easy to just, again, insulate yourself away. It's like, that, I'm a small, single person, I can't do anything. I think by shifting the, the, the approach, looking from a different angle, trying something new, that's been mm. part of it. But I think it's also for me sort of acknowledging each time I try, it's sort of a failure too, right? Because I haven't solved it. Um, so I keep moving on. And I, and I think there's still more forms and, and and styles for me to try yet in relation to this whole idea of how we are going to get out of petroculture mm. that we're, we're so deeply embedded in right now. Interesting, like just uh, thinking about some of your experiments with this um, material or this topic and how to kind of approach it. I think one of the ones that I was really kind of drawn to um, was Tarhan's A Messy Manifesto. And I think one of the lines that was uh, very evocative for me, right, because it, it kind of takes into consideration a more ironic, or it has a more ironic tone. It um, it talks about in terms of the, the concepts of irrationality as a sort of communication discourse, which I think is very, very interesting. And you say, and I, I thought this was quite poignant, how do you point out that the air smells when everyone's already used to it? By making more stink. How do you point out that everyone's hands are dirty? By making more mess. That is our credo. Mess as manifest, stinking as thinking. I love that quote. So how has this discourse of irrationality as the last possible mode of engagement with a contemporary public that will no longer listen to reason, how has that evolved? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. I think you know that that manifesto was definitely uh, written at a point of great frustration. Um, it was, it was yeah, just yeah. after just after Canada had withdrawn from the Kyoto Protocol, and right. it seemed like there was progress being made, and then not, you know. And um, yeah. Um, but yeah, I think you know, I think the irrational is is such a huge factor in human actions, and uh, I think we tend to at least in certain, you know, academic circles, I guess, maybe some other uh, circles, we tend to think that, you know, if we can just reason and get and, and, and uh, explain to people what needs to be done, then it will be yeah. done. Yeah, uh, but it doesn't seem to work that way. And certainly recent politics indicates that that is, you know, it's going the other direction. And then the irrational is taking on a larger effect, mm -hmm. actually. So, so how do we, you know, can we just throw up our hands and say, there's no reasoning with this? Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm, I, mean, I, I was reluctant to do that, but I also felt that I needed to express that frustration and sort of recognize that, you know, maybe mm -hmm. there is something in the irrational that we can um, learn from, you know, and, and maybe yeah. that maybe the irrational is a mode of communication that or offers certain different modes of communication that can actually be productive in some ways, too. So, you know, that that manifesto very much is an ironic piece in a way and is, a, you know, but, a, you know, sort of satiric and sort of a, is a satire really of the futurist manifesto you know, which is all about speed and about um sort of loving speed and loving machinery yeah but yeah i think you know for me um the irrational is something that you know poetry has a really great place for the irrational right and and uh um and i really i particularly am drawn to difficult poetry mm -hmm. uh you know um i did my dissertation on william blake and uh yeah. um so I, I think that is also something where, you know, poetry offers a form of thinking that is uh, persuasive, but not always through the realm of, of reason. And I think right. that is really powerful. Yeah. Um, 
and other you know visual art other you know, other forms of art do it too but but yeah i think you know in, in a lot of ways the you know the discourse about you know, what we need to do to get out of the um doom loop that we're in in terms of climate change is is very much about techno technological and scientific discourses which are important they're hugely important mm -hmm. but that getting people to actually change their behavior yeah. involves a lot of other things and i think that's where you know culture is super important mm -hmm. absolutely it's like that idea of do you really want to go around and try to reason with all the racists in the world is that your it seems like a sort of <laughs> pointless exactly. type of endeavor right yeah um, definitely mm -hmm. yeah and so i yeah that that idea of reason as always being an answer right um yeah is somewhat pigeonholing my second last question has to do with uh a conversation that you had with daniel heath justice sam mcginney Gregory Schofield and Richard Van Camp on Indigenous masculinities. Uh, so Richard Van Camp um, comments on the documentary uh, that you made. Uh, he says, you made your movies as a man and as a protector of the land and as a keeper of that sacred land. You documented that as a male protector. That was a role. And I just thought, what a great, very beautiful thing to say to anybody. And Richard Van Camp said that to you. And I was just like, oh, wow, that's incredible. So how do you see yourself in the role of protector? How do you see your creative practices fitting into that? Thank you. Yeah, that's uh, really precious words to me uh, from Richard, who's a real dear friend. Yeah, I think, you know, the role of, of protector is not something that I sort of really see myself in, in a way. I mean, I, I would love to be, but I feel like I'm, you know, certainly not uh, succeeding at that if I, you know, if I were to look critically at my own practice. But, but I think that in a way, maybe, you know, maybe it needs to, I think we tend to think about like someone who is a protector as someone who is sort of a hero, right? Or someone who's mm. set uh, set up as, you know, someone who's here to help to protect us. But I think maybe if we were to sort of think about that notion as a more in a more democratic way, I guess, or in a more mm -hmm. military way, you know, if if we're all we all have to be protectors, you know, if if yeah. only a few people are the sort of figureheads who are the ones who make the change or try to make the change is not going to work yeah i think everyone has to take on that that role of the protector right mm -hmm. and, and it doesn't have to be a big thing either i think in a sense you know if, if we just change our attitudes or if, you know if more people change their attitudes toward thinking about the you know the consequences of their life choices and the consequences of the political structures that they live within mm -hmm. then i think that change can happen and, and so if, if more people think of themselves as protectors then that protection actually becomes much more possible. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, so I think if I, I first want to say, no, I'm not really a protector, but if I were to say, I think we all should be. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> put one person above others, yeah. but that it's it's an ethical call that we have to be protectors, right? And, and um, that should be you know probably the most important thing is for us to protect those around us and to protect our other relations as well. Yeah. Um, the land itself and the and the animals and the well especially like in that conversation it, it i thought it was a beautiful conversation in terms of how it brought up the concept of like a man as connected with the hero kind of syndrome as always somewhat assaultive and extractive right and there's those mm -hmm. kind of connections between the sort of quote-unquote hero right and the the sort of uh the, the assaulter let's say the person who's mm -hmm. doing the damage right and they're sort of weaved and one and the same so the the conversation that uh 
in indigenous masculinities was quite powerful for me, right? Because I, I thought, right, I have to rethink because you, you're given all these ideas of what a protector or a leader is, right? And then you have to kind of rethink all of those elements. And so I think that a very, their answer is very pertinent in that it should mm. be unpinned from just that individual kind of hero, particularly considered male or stereotypically considered male. Yeah, that's really, I think, a good point. And that, you know, in a sense that like narrative arcs tend to, in stories, tend to want mm. to have a hero. <laughs> yeah. Um, and this is certainly in Western tradition stories in Hollywood, et cetera. But I think they're, you know, they're in some indigenous stories to a degree as well. Mm -hmm. But, but yeah, I think, you know, we really do need to start to think about a sort of communitarian kind of heroism, I guess, if you want to think of it that way. And one that is not sort of focused on, yeah, solitary, normally, you know, often gendered male, powerful figure who is there to protect, but actually there's this flip side to that, right? Yeah. <laughs> Who's also brooding and uh, debonair yeah. and, yeah. and unable to connect and talk. made in Hollywood on that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, talking about uh, stories, uh, what about uh, your next projects? I think one of your projects is on uh, Indigenous storytelling. Yeah, yeah. So I've been working, as, as I mentioned, with, with storytellers for many years and um, I directed the Center for Creative Writing and Oral Culture for the first 12 years, I guess, of its existence. And uh, as part of that, you know, most of my role, I felt, was to help the storytellers to find audiences or to, you know, to record their work if they wanted to or create books if they wanted to. So I had to create you know, opportunities to help a lot of Indigenous storytellers to do that. Um, and, you know, wrote some art articles along the way about it. But I really wanted now to... Um, to sort of step back and just reflect on the role of Indigenous storytelling in the contemporary world. And because I think, you know, now Indigenous writers are getting a lot of attention, you know, it, with um, it probably among the most, um, you know, well-known of our writers in Canada now are a lot of the Indigenous writers who have, uh, you know, doing amazing work. And I love that work. But also storytellers you know, who are off, often, you know, equally uh, amazing in their artistry, they're not getting very much attention. Um, and so I wanted to try to reflect on, you know, what the stories can bring us, you know, and so, so the, so the book is really, you know, partly a history, or I guess a, a personal history of my relationship with the storytellers that I've known, including my father growing up, uh, and some of my aunts and uncles, but also others, you know, mostly from, you know, Korea and Métis and Anishinaabe traditions who've shared amazing knowledge with me. And so I wanted to think about the stories because they're so relational. And for me, stories are what I call engines of relationship, right? They they create a relationship as the story is being told and they sort of preserve that over time, I think. And uh, so I wanted to, yeah, think about, you know, what, a, what do Indigenous stories bring to us in the contemporary world? And I wanted to think about them not as just, you know, traditions from long ago, but actually as being deeply relevant to today, and especially relevant to relationships with the land. Uh, so I have a major section in the book that is going to be about, about stories and the, the relationship to land and how the Indigenous stories can teach us how to be on the land in an in a ethical way. Uh, what's this book called, and uh, when is it coming out again? Uh, don't really have a date for publication yet. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, uh, Let's see. Yeah, it'd probably be in a year and a half or so. And then, yeah, okay. Uh, be out. 
Um, I'm still negotiating on the title as well, but it'll be about yeah. contemporary storytelling. Yeah. Oh, I'm very, very excited for that. That's uh, going to be great. And uh, the other project that you're working on is called? Um, it's uh, a, a new edition of Gregory Younging's Elements of Indigenous Style, which uh, is has been an incredible resource for, you know, people in many different fields. Um, but uh, yeah, Greg Younging was an amazing uh, Cree uh, editor and um, visionary who ran Thetis Press for many years. Um, Greg distilled all of his knowledge uh, mm -hmm. of you know working in Indigenous publishing um, into that that handbook. And um, unfortunately, he passed away not very long after the book was published. And mm -hmm. so the Publishers Brush Education want to you know have a new edition of the book. You know as you know like the the Chicago Manual of Style and the MLA Guide. You know they bring out new editions. Well. This book also, you know, think times change and and uh, things need to be updated. So so they asked if I would help um, and bring together a team to to add some material and then sort of revise and see if we can, you know, help to to you know preserve. We really want to preserve Greg's all of the things that he brought to the book, which is you know truly extraordinary. Um, but to see if we can add some things to that. And so that's uh, another pro progress. Of, you know, we'll, hopefully that will be within the next year or so that 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 edition will come out. Wonderful. I can't wait for both of those and more petrographs and more of uh, just your wonderful, wonderful work. Right. Uh, thank you so much, Warren, for uh, being here with Tea House. Uh, do you have any last words? I just want to thank you very much for the fantastic conversation. And it's been uh, been wonderful. And I really appreciate the, the invitation to be here. Thank you so much, Warren. Hey, goodbye. you enjoyed this interview of Warren Carew with Mark Herman Lynch. I'm Ben Bermingan, and you're listening to Tea House Talks. Tea House recognizes the generous support of the Canada Research Chair Program and the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. We also appreciate the support of the Faculty of Arts and the Department of English at the University of Calgary, where our offices are housed, as well as the guidance of Mart Stuckel at the Taylor Family Digital Library. Tea House is run by Larissa Lai, Micah Jacobson, Rebecca Gillen, Mahmoud Ababne, Ryan Stern, Shu Yin Yu, Mark Lynch, Shazia Hafif Ramji, Benjamin Gann, and Amy LeBlanc. Our music is Monarch of the Streets by Loyalty Freak Music. Stay tuned for the next episode of Tea House Talks. For more on the work of Tea House, including symposia, panels, and readings, please check out our website at, at www.tiahouse.ca. If you'd like to be in touch, send us an email at tiahouseyyc at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.